0: Hi, this is Crystal Cyrus from the OOTW podcast and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World.
1: I'm Chris McBrian and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me.
0: And I'm Derek Myers and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation.
1: Episode 147, Remo Williams The Adventure Begins movie review. <laughs> chris McBrian, along with derek myers and this is pop goes your world the pop culture podcast for the generations you'll find us on twitter at amaron underscore dm for derek and at c McBrien for me pop is our website with all of our contact information derek what's new in the world of pop culture for you my friend
0: Hey, Chris. Uh, Not a whole lot. Uh, Really, the only thing that I've had a chance to do outside of the watch the movie for tonight's episode is I finished watching all the Marvel MCU movies. I've mentioned that in the last few shows. Oh, you finished them now? Finally, finally watched uh, the last one a couple of nights ago was um, Spider-Man Far From Home. And uh, that's the last installment that's been released. And so I had a chance to watch it. There was actually uh, there's a scene. Uh, non-spoiler here for people who maybe haven't seen it There's a scene where the um, The students, like the whole premise Is that they go to Europe, hence the Far From Home subtitle And there's a scene where the students are getting off the airplane In, I think it's Germany And as the camera is panning Through the airport, it starts in the left And it pans right as the, as the characters Move from left to right across the screen But when it starts, it's at the left side Of the screen, there's an Asian family All wearing masks and oh. when I see this, it doesn't phase me whatsoever. And then as the camera pans, it starts to show everybody else and nobody else is wearing masks. And that kind of freaked me out. It's <laughs> sort of the opposite of I'm sure when I first saw the movie in the theater a year, year and a half Why ago. Why are those people wearing masks? It's like, yeah. oh, no, oh, they're you – know. and I mean I, we li- I live in Toronto. Uh, there's a large Asian population. And so I'm used to seeing culturally a lot of the, the various Asian groups will wear masks just in general. I mean, in in Asia, there's obviously uh, pollution issues and other reasons to wear them. And so when the people who made this movie, they made a deliberate choice in this particular scene, it was again, it wasn't like uh, uh, to to draw specific attention to it. But I just thought it was interesting. Now that I was watching it in the circumstances of COVID-19 to see people in a scene with masks didn't phase me at all and then but by contrast the people who at the time were quote-unquote normal not wearing masks that kind of freaked me out so it was it was sort of a little interesting uh, observation and uh, cultural shift if you will now i have a
1: question for you on the marvel cinematic universe that you mentioned you watched all these movies and you mentioned spider-man far from home now again i don't watch anything after 1989 so i have to ask all these dumb questions is Spider-Man part of that Marvel... I thought that they sold it or something like that you had mentioned in a previous podcast so that Spider-Man wasn't part of that whole universe.
0: They brought it back in. It, it all oh, came down okay. to dollars and cents where um, they had sold the rights to the Spider-Man movie franchise to, I believe, it was Sony Pictures. So that was and, the Tobey Maguire ones. And the Andrew Garfield ones. Okay. The, and part of the contract when they were selling... Like in the 90s, Marvel sold off a lot of these property rights because they needed the money. They were in financial hardship. And... Um, they sold like the Hulk was sold to Universal, and um I, one of the other groups got the Fantastic Four and Fox got X-Men and Sony got Spider-Man. like it was a fire sale. They were selling off everything. And then when they started to, you know, come back in the the what is now the MCU with Iron Man, they had to reach out to these um studios and say, like, we had this grand plan where we want to bring all these characters together under one franchise. And again, it became a dollars and cents issue where it just became a matter of negotiating the money and getting the permission to do whatever needed to be done in order to incorporate these characters. And with, when it came to Sony and Spider-Man, they, they, they agreed to split the revenues. Uh, Again, I, I'm not privy to the details, but I got to think it was probably a pretty even split. And by that point, I think there were about a dozen or so movies in the MCU had already come out and been tremendously successful. So I think Sony realized that they were going to make more money allowing them to include Spider-Man under that umbrella uh, and do it right and make it a part of their – and make it a part of like the bigger group than they would to – be a hard ass about it and put their foot down and say no we have the rights we're going to do what we want and make an inferior film that has nothing to do with what is now the most successful box office movie franchise ever. So anyway, yeah, so long answer to yes, Spider-Man is a part of it and cool. the character and the actor have both appeared in a number of other movies. They appeared in one of the Captain America movies, appeared in a couple of the Avengers movies. So that that's the whole uh, uh advantage of, of having this kind of a setup with the Marvel movies is you can have the characters Uh, cross-pollinate into the other movies. Just because it's a Captain America movie doesn't mean he's the only one who can appear in it. If you want to throw Iron Man into the Captain America movie to help tell the bigger story, they did it. So, it worked really well. Hmm.
1: Very cool. Um, I got a couple things for you. Okay, so first of all, my youngest son has been having a a bit of a hard time getting to sleep at night when we're away at the trailer. And he always likes to watch something before bed. And we've got a DVD uh, player there. So, like the thing is I don't want him to watch a whole movie, you know, like it's too long, you know, right. before bed. So so we were looking for like a TV series. You know, you just put on like a half hour episode, you know, and then he can go to sleep. And I was looking through my DVDs and I found season 1 of Land of the Lost, the one that ran from 74 to 77. Now the thing is my son is he's very very picky about what he watches, but guess what? He loves that show absolutely loves it so now every night when we're there we watch an episode of land of the lost before bed it's a nostalgic trip back in time for me let me tell you and it's a lot of fun for him too and it was funny because my wife uh, went to put him to bed the one night and she sat through an episode of it and she comes out of the trailer and she's like that show is awful and she's like it's the worst show i've ever seen she just doesn't <laughs> get it i don't know I don't know. But yeah, the, I, it was a little before my time. I don't uh-huh. get
0: it either. I gotta agree with my wife on that one. I love it. I
1: love it. Uh, so that was one thing. The other thing I, w- I wanted to share an email that I received from a listener. Uh, so it says, Chris, I've been listening to the podcast for some time now, and I wanted to say how much I've enjoyed it. I'm glad uh, that you finally liked one of Derek's movies in Pleasantville. You yay. Men- yay. Yeah, yay. You mentioned several of the film and TV home uh, homages in the movie, like back to the future to kill a mockingbird and do the right thing. I think I counted about 10 more than those. Looking forward to the surprise that you've got in store for next episode, and that's from Carter Young. So thanks for the email. Uh, It's uh, obviously about our Pleasantville review we did a few weeks ago, and the surprise that he mentions is when we brought Yancey back the following week to do our top five uh, favorite Prince songs. But as for the movie homages in Pleasantville, Derek, you mentioned that it got me thinking because you were mentioning the scene in the bowling alley and how it was a nod to Patton, and I'm sure it was. But I'll be honest with you: when I watched that movie, I immediately thought of Citizen Kane for that scene, like the slanted okay. shot, the way it's yeah. shot from below. You know, um, I would say there was probably are also nods to Fahrenheit 451. Uh, oh, for sure, know, in the movie the
0: book burning. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, whether it's
1: intentional or not. Um, and then the scene when Toby Maguire. Goes out into the rain. I don't know if it was supposed to be like this, but it reminded me of the Shawshank Redemption.
0: When, yeah, when I read they, a note about that where they said, um because again, I, I did a lot of homework for that podcast. Um, Again, because I enjoyed the movie so much, and one of the things that the author and director—I guess we've been the director—had been asked was about a lot of these these homages that you're talking about, and that was one that was brought up. And he claims that he had no idea that that similar shot was used in Shawshank Redemption, but he's like, if you feel that that's a, a parallel and an homage, he's like, that's a great movie. I'm cool with that. So it sounds like that was an unintentional one, but. Yeah. yeah, all were, the other were, ones you had, I think, yeah. are, are very much intentional. Yeah, there were, there were
1: so many of them. There was, I'm sure there's lots more, too. But I think the most important thing is that, you know, we're talking about them and real movie buffs. We notice this stuff, you know, and we love it, too. Right. So but I want to say Absolutely. thanks for the email to, to Carter and thanks for listening to the show, obviously. And if you'd like to get into the podcast around here, you can send us an email either to Chris at PopGoesYourWorld.com or Derek at PopGoesYourWorld.com and we'll get it into the show. Um, as you know, I'm the cheesy dad, so here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, why didn't the man who wanted to lose weight go on an all-almond diet?
0: Um, I don't know. He was nuts. I have no idea.
1: Because that's just nuts. Oh.
0: No, I was right. Very oh, close. Very oh, close. Very close. Sorry. I didn't mean to steal the punchline. I was <laughs> That's just... Okay. I was You're... trying to think, like, it's going to be the most dumb, obvious <laughs> answer. What is it? You're transforming into a dad, too.
1: This is oh. awesome. <laughs> Who would win in a fight between Celine Dion and and Justin Bieber.
0: Like, love-hate relationship? What does that even mean? Hey, man, 10 bucks is 10 bucks. I think it's getting warmer in here. You ever notice in movies they never look at the road when they're driving? We've never been separated (laughs) before. Nice effects, eh? Hey, maybe this Tim Hortons donut will change your mind, eh? Take off, eh? (laughs) They walk in on the parents doing it? No, no, I'm not doing that. I don't do that. Okay, so well, this week
1: it was over to me, and I had to nominate the movie. I went with 1985, um, uh, we'll say, uh, adventure film. Uh, sure. Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. As I have mentioned before, before we get into this, I just want to say one of my absolute favorite things about doing this podcast is that I get to go back and, and watch movies from Gen X that I used to love, but I haven't seen in a long time. And there is there was a time in my life when I used to watch movies like crazy. Now, Of course, I just watched the same movies over and over again, of course, Derek. But I used to spend a lot of my time watching movies. But these days, you know, I've got kids and it's all cartoons and Netflix and Disney Plus and not that. And Land of the Lost. Land of the Lost now, thank goodness. And I'm watching, you know, the stuff that they like to watch. It's I guess it's not really a bad thing, but I just I don't get the chance to go back and watch my favorite old Gen X movies like I used to. But the thing is, every third week around here, I get the chance to go back and relive my past with a big old healthy dose of nostalgia. And this week's no different. So, like I say, it was my turn to nominate the movie. So, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins is what I wanted to do. It was an optimistically titled movie, to say the least, because it implies that there were a whole series of these movies to come that never happened, uh, regardless of the reasons why. And we'll get into those in a minute. The thing is, I really liked this movie back in the 80s. I was Went to see it in the movie theater in 1985 and i had a copy on vhs and i used to watch it over and over again and i remember my university roommates used to hate me for it uh derek you've obviously seen the movie before i nominated it here for the podcast i probably had been a while but now that you went back and watched it uh, without getting too deep into the movie itself because we're going to get to that just what were your impressions of the film initially after 35 years since it came
0: out All right. So yes, you're correct. I, I had seen it before in 1985 when I was 11 years old in the movie theater. I went to the movie theater, nice. my buddy and his dad, my buddy's dad used to take us to the movies all the time. Cause he was a real movie buff too, but he just loved the experience of going to the movie. He couldn't care less what we went to see. So we almost always got to pick. And uh, again, when you're an 11 year old boy, you want to see action adventure, shoot em up, Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, Stallone, like that's, that's your whole kind of movie. And so this seemed to be sort of in that wheelhouse. It was like a, sort of like a James Bond spy kind of something with some action. It was, you know, it, it promised everything an 11 year old boy expects from an action movie. And as an 11 year old, I can remember coming out of the movie and thinking this movie was fantastic. I'm glad it's called The Adventure Begins. We're clearly going to get more adventures. And and, you know, as I grew up a little bit, I I was initially disappointed we didn't get more adventures, Um, but I hadn't seen it since I was 11 years old until this week. And let me tell you. Is terrible i think it's (laughs) (laughs) it's perfect if you are an 11 year old boy and beyond that there's no redeeming factors about this movie it was awful (laughs) I, i i felt bad for all the people that were attached to this movie i'm watching it and as different actors are on the screen i'm like oh i bet you look back on this and think can we just erase that from my imdb page please it's uh it 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 could have been great. There was certainly a lot of the the building blocks there to potentially be great, but it had a lot of problems and there is so much that does not hold up. And in a way, I was kind of glad it was this bad because I thought this will give us a lot to talk about on the podcast. But <laughs> right? on the other hand, after about a half an hour and I started to realize just how bad it was, I thought, oh, my God, I got 90 more minutes of this. Uh, so, yeah, um, uh, spoiler, I did not care for it the second time around. And we'll talk more about the reasons why.
1: Okay. So for me, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I liked it. I liked it the first time I saw it and I really enjoyed it again this time around. Uh, but I, before we get into a deep dive on the film and we will, I want to talk about uh, a number of things about this movie. So number one, is this one of the best opening themes though,
0: ever? It, it, yes. Wasn't that was it one good? of the only good things. Oh, The music man, was both so good, good and terrible. The theme music, like the Remo theme that you actually teased at the end of the last podcast. Yes, it's so good. It's great. It's got that very much that 80s military sort of like the hero is here kind of music that like it's in your face anthem style music. But then you get into the synthesizers because it was the 80s and immediately it dates the movie. (laughs) And in my opinion, it really hurt it. So. I'm both agreeing and disagreeing with you on this one.
1: I liked it. I liked the score too. We'll get back into that in a minute. So the second thing is, is I want to talk about is Joel Gray. So he was a very well-known and very well-respected actor. Uh, And he actually won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar in 1972 for Cabaret. He's also Jennifer Gray's dad. Um, He was nominated actually for a Golden Globe for this movie, if you can believe it. And the thing is, he gives a, and actually he gives a really good performance here as Chun. However, he's a white guy playing a Korean. And the thing is, this is is not the only example of actors playing roles outside their race. And in fact, this is still an issue today in 2020. We're seeing... Hank Azaria recently stepping down from playing up Apu on The Simpsons. And Zoe Zaldana has apologized recently for playing a black woman since she's Dominican. Um, But this has been an issue throughout the history of film. If you go all the way back, uh, over 100 years ago, to Broken Blossoms in 1919, Richard Barthelmus played an Asian character who was given this horribly racist nickname in the film by Lillian Gish's character, too. But, I mean, you got John Wayne played Genghis Khan. Yule brenner was the king of siam lawrence Olivier was a fellow i mean heck even tonto more recently in the lone ranger was played by johnny depp yeah and of course the worst example of all time mr mickey rooney mr yuniyoshi yes mickey rooney himself in breakfast at tiffany's um where he didn't just play a japanese character it was probably the single most racist performance in the history of film but all that being said where does joel gray's depiction of chun stand for you
0: Uh, so I, I was very surprised when doing a little bit of homework for this after watching the movie that the makeup artists were nominated for an Oscar for this movie for the, for the depiction of him as this Korean character. He took four hours every day in the makeup chair to look like that. So, I mean, on the one hand, and I, I'm not excusing, I don't want it to sound like I'm excusing or any, like, I think this is a travesty that should never have happened. And I was embarrassed every time he was on screen. I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is hard to watch. And I'm glad I felt that way because I think if I didn't, uh, it would have said something about me. But uh, on the other hand, the artistry that would be required to apply makeup to a performer to try and convincingly have them be somebody they're clearly not. I, I mean, I guess you have to sort of tip the hat a small bit to say like, okay, okay, you must be a gifted makeup artist to be able to do this. But it comes down to like, if he had been a, a black character played by a white man, like that would never fly. And you absolutely would never heard the end of it. But it just seems that there are some lines where for the longest time, Hollywood didn't really have an issue crossing over the line. It's like, how hard would it have been to find a Korean actor? Um, anyway so yeah, yeah no, I, and, I,
1: the, I, and the thing was joel gray didn't even want to play the part because he was he, well, just right. for that he reason well. yeah. but yeah. but it, it wasn't until they they did the makeup they said let us do the makeup and they put the makeup on and when he saw what he looked like with the makeup on that's when he was like, okay, maybe I will play this part. But the funny thing was they actually tried to make this into a TV series and they went and shot a pilot. And the, instead of, I mean, none of the originals from the movie, you know, went to the TV uh, series, but instead of getting a Korean actor for Chun at that point, they went with Roddy McDowell, <laughs> who basically mimicked Joel Gray's performance. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's something to think about. But th- another thing I wanted to mention was the title of the movie itself the adventure begins. So obviously, uh, as I mentioned, very optimistically, it implies a series of films, but only one ever got made because the movie was a bomb. It cost $40 million to make, but it only brought in $14 million at the domestic box office. So it only covered 35% of its cost, and it finished 62nd at the box office for the year. It was outgrossed by luminaries such as Protocol, Invasion USA, and Mickey and Maud. And I don't think I've heard of any of them. They movies. were there. They were terrible. Now you kind of alluded to this, like the movie. I remember when this movie came out, it was marketed as a James Bond type movie. I think they were they were hoping that it would maybe like kind of compete, you know, um, with a with that franchise like 007. Um, they even hired Guy Hamilton to direct it because he had directed Bond films. He directed Goldfinger, Live and Let Die, Diamonds Are Forever, The Man with the Golden Gun. But the movie. It just didn't do it with audiences. And I think for me, one of the reasons might be the casting. Yeah, I agree. As much as I like the movie, and I I, I do think Joel Grey was actually good in it, all things aside, you know. But as much as I like Fred Ward in the role, I do not think he was the right choice. Definitely not the right choice to carry a franchise. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of charisma to do. And I just don't think he was the best
0: choice. Yeah, I got <clears throat> excuse me. I agree 100%. I I I like him as an actor in a small supporting role. Um I actually thought he was really good in the movie Tremors oh, and Tremors he was great. Yeah. Um but aside from that, he's he's popped up in a lot of stuff over the years. Like he never this was probably his biggest movie, right? Like this was his star he was yeah. the star. Yeah. And and unfortunately for him or fortunately for him, fortunately for us, I guess, is that because it was pretty much a bomb that was it. He had his shot. It didn't. It didn't hit. And so forever after that, he was a supporting actor. But I mean, I'm looking at his IMDb page. Like this guy works a lot. Yep. So he's just not a leading man. He's, okay. he's not a leading man. That's no, the thing, no. right? I mean, he's not ugly, but he's not Hollywood beautiful. He does, like you said, he doesn't have that charisma. Sometimes with actors, in my opinion, sometimes with actors, they can be either. And this applies to men and women. More, more so for men. They can be traditionally good-looking where people look at them and they're just like, wow, that that's a beautiful person. That's an ex- exceptionally handsome man. Or you have performers who maybe don't have the traditional, quote-unquote, traditional good looks, but they have charisma. They can carry a scene. There's something about them where you're like, I want to get to know that person. I find Daniel Craig is like that in my opinion. I don't necessarily think Daniel Craig is the most handsome man on the planet, but I do feel he has – a charisma in some performances. And I know when we did the James Bond uh Casino Royale review, you you sort of disagreed with that. Mm-hmm. But um but he's one where I think in the right circumstances, he can really pour it on. And that, you know, that's one of those things. But where with Fred Ward, it's like he seems like a nice enough guy, but at the same time, I, I didn't get that, you know, quote unquote leading man feel when I watched this movie or with any of the movies that he's been in. He's he's in my mind, he's a supporting character, he's a supporting actor. And I think putting them in the front here, was a risk and unfortunately didn't pay off
1: see I would build on what you just said and I would say it's actually three things it's it's one looks like you mentioned two charisma and the third one would be acting chops so you need one of those three things ideally you'd have all three to be like a mega movie star sure. But you, you need at least one of those three things and unfortunately Fred Ward doesn't have any of those three things
0: <laughs> yeah you know? yeah so. I sort of felt that actually you know while I'm thinking about it, I just <laughs> want to take a step back to the makeup for a minute and right. I'm sure we'll talk about this in a roundabout way but before sure. I forget so we were talking – we talked a lot here a minute ago about Joel uh, uh, Joel Gray in the makeup. So on the one hand, I'm acknowledging the ability of the makeup department to make a white man look well, uh, convincingly – small c with quotation marks convincingly like a Korean man. Um, certainly a, a, a better job than had been done in previous movies. But at the beginning of the movie when Fred Ward is the police officer in the car and then um, – you know, he, you know, he gets killed. Oh my God, he's killed, but he's not really killed. And then they they hire him to be part of this group. And when he looks in the mirror, he's like, who's that? That's not me. And they're like, we did some work on your face. All they did was shave his mustache. Yeah,
1: let's like, let's stick a pin in that and come back to that. Because I agree oh, with you. I want to oh, come back to that. Because okay, you, we'll you make a, a really good point. I didn't point. want I didn't want to miss yeah. that. That you know, since we yeah. were
0: talking about makeup, I didn't want to overlook that. We'll come <laughs> back to that.
1: I love that point and I want to come back to that. Because one other thing I want to just mention before we get into the movie itself is I couldn't find this movie anywhere. And usually when we get a movie to watch on the podcast here, I'll I'll usually start by looking to the streaming services. But not this time, it wasn't on Netflix, it wasn't even on iTunes, I couldn't even get the DVD on Amazon, it wasn't on Amazon Prime, and so my oldest son and I went to this retro DVD movie store, and they have everything in this place, and they didn't even have it there. This movie is not easy to get your hands on, and I was worried I might have to bust out the old VHS player and like adjust the tracking to watch this thing, but uh, anyway, Um so the movie itself, so let's let's just kind of break apart the movie and just kind of go through it, kind of like a, like a trip back in time. So the movie starts out with a cop sitting in his car next to the Hudson River, and he's eating a cheeseburger. And these guys run by, and they're chasing another guy. So the cop has to do his job, right? He has to get involved. And he ends up beating the crap out of all these guys. So the thing is, they establish he's a good fighter. But it just turns out to be a setup, and the cop gets pushed into the water, and then divers go down and get him or whatever. And there's a funeral, but there's nobody there other than cops. So again, they establish that he has no family. He has no friends. And then he wakes up in the hospital. And this is where, just like you mentioned, he looks at himself in the mirror and he's like, Hey, that's not me. And he looks the exact same <laughs> other than shaving off his porn stash. There's fundamentally
0: nothing different about him. <laughs> yeah. Now, again, this, this detail, I did remember <laughs> from the movie that, they, they changed his identity. They gave him a yeah. name. I remember the whole joke about the name, but I, and I figured they must've, uh, they must've done like a plastic surgery. Around. So in that scene where he's in the cop car, they, there is, I look, I, I really paid attention to this. So there is some <laughs> prosthetics on his face, but it's okay. basically just like his cheeks. Like it's like around his cheeks and his jaw to try and make them look a little bigger, but the makeup was applied so poorly that when you're watching it, if you know to look for it, and I was specifically looking for it because I thought, well, they change his look. So when we see him initially, he must look different. You could see where it wasn't like glued down very well. Even the mustache—he's like, got this, yeah. like one of the most fake mustaches I've ever seen. It's like he hardly
1: used any spirit gum on it. Like it's just yeah, kind of coming off.
0: So bad. I mean,
1: this is the '80s. Come
0: on. People grew mustaches. The 80s was the mustache era. Later in this movie, like everybody else has a real mustache. How hard would it have been for this guy to like grow Fred, a mustache? Yeah. Hey, the shoots in two weeks. Start growing a mustache. Exactly,
1: Fred. I would know we normally don't shoot movies in sequence, but we're gonna do the opening scene first. So just grow a mustache for that. We'll yeah. shave it off and then we'll shoot the rest out of sequence. For uh, a movie that, that costs 40 million dollars, I will say, like it comes off as as kind of a low budget kind of movie overall.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, pretty- I think they blew uh, uh too much of the budget on some of the special location like the Statue of Liberty, which I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. more. later. and Joel Gray's makeup, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> that
1: right. was they were they're so busy doing that, but uh, yeah. So I, anyway, I, I just I thought that was pretty funny. And then the guy says to him, "We did some plastic surgery on you, just your face." Like,
0: <laughs> yeah. He immediately he's like, "We did some work on you," and he looks down at his at his privates. Yeah, and in the guy says, "Just your face." And then, the, and I, then the, that actually made me laugh. Yeah.
1: It, and it, well, there's there's humor throughout the movie, and that was definitely where it starts. And then the guy says that his name is Remo Williams which he gets from the bottom of the bedpan. And so we're supposed to believe that this sophisticated assassination syndicate goes to all the trouble of finding a loner cop that has good fighting skills and they set him up and they fake his death and they don't even give him a new name. (laughs) They just make it up and improvise it off of a bedpan. I I know it's played for humor, but I don't know. It just came off as a little strange. So he walks out of the hospital. He wants to get away and he steals an ambulance. Did you notice the ambulance driver?
0: Yeah, it was a guy from Die Hard. Uh, yeah, Reginald
1: Bell Johnson from Urkel, yeah. the dad on Urkel, right? Yeah. And then um, McCreary gets him, and he, and he takes him back to this headquarters place, and there's this huge room full of computers, and he goes, I thought they found out a way to make these things smaller. And he's like, these are the small ones. It reminded me of when we did War Games. It was the same thing, that these huge computers, so, right?
0: I actually like this scene because- um, when they, when they establish sort of who this secret organization is and what they do and they've been around and they're like this clandestine, do the right thing. Uh, what did he say? Where the, the 11th commandment thou shall not get away with it. Right. Right. And you're like, okay, like they established pretty quickly that these guys are going to work outside of the normal channels, but they've, their hearts in the right place and the ends will justify the means and all that rah, rah, rah. But it's the way that they, um, uh, the way that they they explained it, Wilford Brimley's character essentially has the internet. Like he talks about how we have everything that's been broadcast, everything that's that's goes over the radio and the TV and the newsprint, and they're getting surveillance cameras. I'm like, this was the internet before the internet. So no, I, I thought point. that was a little yeah. bit uh, ahead of its time. Uh, I mean, so much good science fiction um, is is eventually like you sort of think, okay. These are some solu- these are some problems we're gonna have in this setting. How would we solve for those? And in science fiction, you just mo- you know the most broad sweeping generalization because as an author, you don't want to pigeonhole it or come up with the wrong thing. And I think this is an example where the movie guys were just like, okay, we need some blah blah explanation that's not gonna take twenty minutes to explain that you can just wrap your head around. And they just say, hey, there's a room full of computers and they're super powerful and they got all this information and they leave it at that. And it was. It was eloquent considering how lame so many other things the movies were. <laughs>
1: well, you mentioned Wilford Brimley and he plays Harold Smith. Which, which I just like, want to
0: say, all right, Wilford Brimley, he just passed a couple yes, weeks ago. He just passed
1: like two weeks ago or whatever. So, yep. um, so his character in this is Harold Smith, which is an anonymous name for an anonymous group, right? And I have a question for you, Derek. Do you know how old Wilford Brimley was when he made this movie? It's the same age he was when he made Cocoon, which
0: came out the same yep. year. I want to say, if I remember this correctly, I think it was 51. So he was 50. And maybe it's just me,
1: but I'm 50. And I sure hope I don't look anything like Wilford Brimley in Cocoon because he was supposed to be like a senior citizen.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Well, the the, the statistic I remember hearing was um, when Tom Cruise filmed the Mission Impossible movie when they were in Dubai, where he was like hanging off the side of the building he was 50 and that was the same age Wilford Brimley was when he made Cocoon and they're like, "Could you imagine Wilford Brimley hanging off the side of the building of Dubai? Not a chance. He could barely and, get in the
1: swimming pool
0: in Cocoon. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think the whole point was just that, uh, you know, the different the different generations, like 10, right. 20 years later, th- there's just a different um, uh, you, you pay attention to your body differently, pay attention to health differently. It's just different values, different ideas, different goals and at 50, Tom Cruise wants to be an action star. He doesn't want to be someone's grandpa right? and and uh, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Anyway, neither here nor there. A little yeah. side, but Wilford Brimley.
1: So, so the group you mentioned—they're called Cure, right? And they assassinate people in power that basically aren't held to accountability by anyone. Because I right. think he even says at one point, "We take out the people that are so corrupt as to impugn everything the United States stands for." Yeah. Maybe it's just me, but they could probably use these guys today. You know, more more than back then. But anyway, so they send Remo in to do his first hit, and it's Chun. Right. And that's where Joel Gray is playing the Korean guy.
0: Not that he knows that's who he's going in for initially. Mm-hmm. And
1: yeah, he doesn't know because he goes in. He goes, I, I'm looking for your boss. Right. And and just another aside on Joel Gray. Again, four hours in the makeup chair, like we said. So he spends four hours in the makeup chair and he doesn't even look Korean. Like, I just don't understand it. But yeah, anyway. it was. Yeah. So Chun in this scene starts. He dodges bullets. And my wife turns to me at this point and she says, oh, this is just like the Matrix. Only sh so and the other thing in this scene which i thought was interesting is there's this fight between them and you can totally tell that it's a stunt man in for fred ward it's so obvious like you can see the guy's face and and the stunts aren't even that complex he just runs around and like bumps into walls and stuff and it was just so odd because ward did almost all of his own stunts in this movie, like the Ferris wheel and stuff. I am not, I don't understand why they wouldn't let him just bang around in a room with Joel gray for a bit here. I just, I I wonder if
0: maybe it was shot after the fact they're like, we need to pad out this scene. Maybe. maybe it was maybe they changed it like he originally came in went up the stairs turned around and then had a very short encounter and they're like you know what we need to establish a right. little earlier in the movie that uh, that Chun has some skills quote-unquote some skills
1: right so maybe they went back and shot and like maybe yeah. I don't maybe he wasn't available because you know he's such a, a popular actor I don't know but um, and then there was one part in this whole fight sequence that just stood out to me it did then and it does that it does now uh, Chun points his hand at the wall and And a piece of paper falls off the wall. I am not sure what the hell that was all about.
0: I don't even know. So this happened a few times in the movie where Jun like points at his body and like without actually coming into contact with it. It's almost like he can, you know, through the force of will, pressure point something just by like pointing at it or like I think like in traditional... Uh, anime and stuff, you'd see it's like they push the wind, and it's like you know this, but then, that kind of thing. But if, but if
1: that's what they were going for, like like knock something over, but it's like a piece of paper just falls off the wall. I'm like, what?
0: Yeah, okay, you're a tough
1: guy. <laughs> like I don't know. um But anyway, so the fight's over, and that's when we find out Chun works for Cure. He's a master of Shinanju, and and another funny thing on Shinanju, by the way. So when they were casting this movie, actors were auditioning for the role of Chun, and. A couple of them came into the audition and they were like, Oh, well, we're here because, you know, I'm I'm a master in Shenanju. But it was a make-believe martial art that was created by the guy that wrote the destroyer books. So they were yeah. just totally lying. Like they were just busted, yeah. right? <laughs> just so, <laughs> but anyway, so we meet Fleming, who's played by
0: Kate Mulgrew. And this is at the point of the movie where I thought my wife might get interested in things because she she was the only shining moment in this in this movie. I thought that This when I was saying at the beginning, some of the actors are looking back at their IMDb and sort of shaking their head. Kate Mulgrew got to be like wishing this could just come off her IMDb. In my opinion, she was like one of the only shining parts of this movie.
1: I would Today. say that oh, I would say morning. that she yeah she was good in this. And my wife and I have been watching Orange is the New Black on Netflix and Kate Mulgrew plays a very prominent role on that show. So I thought my wife would like get interested in this. Nope. Um but anyway, so Fleming is she's trying to get into the computer database and this other military guy comes up to her with this kind of sleazy oh, sexist yeah. approach and totally sexually harasses her. And then she even goes to see the general. And and he says to her, you know, you don't have to try so hard. It makes no difference to me that you're a woman. And the, the only thing was I liked her response because she says, "Yeah, I was
0: going to say it she, makes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You, what, what her line was. Yeah. She says he says it doesn't make a difference to me that you're a woman. And she's like, if it you know, it doesn't make it doesn't bother me that you're a man. And then he gets miffed at that. Like, how dare you say that to me? And again, it just, it's that whole double standard thing. It really, that didn't sit well with me when I'm watching this. Like, how is it okay that he says that to her? But when she literally flips it back on it to him, he gets bent out of shape about it. It's like, yeah. And the same thing with the guy when he came over and he's like stroking her hand and stuff. And oh, she, she gives him a, you know, she, she insults him as best you can in a PG rated movie, but yeah, um, she, she's like, I'll find my satisfaction somewhere else. Thanks. Yeah. Like she, she basically insults him. Yeah. And I think. I think this is the best you could do at this time where in order to portray this character, because you want the audience to still like this character, right? You can't make her out to be like this tough as nails woman because you're going to alienate a whole bunch of the audience at the time where they're like, oh, well, look at this one. Like, you know, it's going to have this negative effect. I think they they tread the line very well where they establish that her character is. Highly competent, highly capable, um, and at the same point, it's like she's understood what kind of hurdles are in front of her simply because of her gender, and she's addressing them in the only ways she can and to the only extent that she can without putting herself in jeopardy. As much as she should, in some cases, she would be absolutely within her rights to 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 make a bigger deal of it. Uh, you know, I think unfortunately, given the time and the circumstances, it's like. She she did everything she could w- without getting herself in trouble. And that's, again, why I think I found that her performance was good because it had this female character. She had a, a strong role, strong morals. She likes, you know, she stuck to her gun. She was always trying to find the truth. She, she said no to power. Uh, you know, it, it was a decent role, all things considered, because usually the women in these movies are just like, oh, rescue me, male hero. I'm in danger. And it's like I didn't get any of that. Uh, I mean, there's the one scene where they're in the the pressure chamber, but, um, you know, for the most part, she's, she seems very competent and capable.
1: Yeah. Going back to that line, when she says to the general, she, cause she says, it makes no difference to me that you're a man, which I thought was a really good line, but the way that she delivers
0: that line, it takes away some of the punch. Yeah. So whether but or not. But I think it had to. She yeah. Had to I think you're right. It, like for laughs, like, cause she sort of smiles as she said it. Yeah. Whereas. I expect like, again, if that was to happen today, I would expect the response from the woman to be very much like, how dare you say that to me? And to respond with that sort of tone. But the fact that she sort of says it with a smile and, and almost like with a wink, she doesn't actually wink. But I think it to your point, it takes it down a notch to the point where she's not going to get reprimanded for it. But it was still a true enough statement that the male, felt it was inappropriate. I'm like, well, how is it inappropriate for her? And not you again. It's you look at it with today's lens. There's a lot of issues with this movie, but anyway.
1: yeah. And So the next scene, um, Chun, they start training. Right. And I like it because Chun says, put your hands behind your head. And then he kicks him in the go mads. Yeah. He goes, I didn't say keep him there. And, and so, so there's, there's humor there. And then the next right away, Chun is watching soap operas. So again, I think they're trying to inject humor into the script, which I think, the movie needs because, for me, at its core, this is a lighthearted movie, and it yeah. should not be taken too seriously. I think if you take it too seriously, that's where you kind of fall into the trap of saying, "Oh, this movie just sucks," and and I don't think it does. I think it's it's a lighthearted. It's just it's 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 just a fun. It's a lot of fun, you know, in this movie.
0: Well- what I was reading in the, some of the some of the IMDB trivia is they were saying that one of the one of the when they you like when you're gonna come up with a new project, you gotta pitch it, right? What's your elevator pitch? Like when you're on the elevator with the executive and you have twenty seconds to give them a pitch because you may never get a meeting. What's your pitch? And apparently the the sort of the one line pitch for this was blue collar James Bond. That was that was their pitch is we want him to be like James Bond and that he works for this secret organization and he has this training and he maybe can go places that he's not supposed to. And he he fights the powerful. But at the same time, they were really pushing to try and make this a quote unquote relatable character to like the more blue collar, whereas James Bond is always like, you know, I'm born James Bond. He's all snooty and rich and he's wearing a tuxedo. This was supposed to be the guy in jeans and a wife beater t-shirt, he wants to drink a beer. He wants to eat a hot dog. Like he's like the guy that lives next door to you or that, you know, you were working with this afternoon. Like, and uh, I feel that the humor was absolutely required to, to get that kind of feel into it. And I think to your point, if there wasn't as much humor in it as there was, and I mean, it, it wasn't all the humor didn't land in my opinion. I mean, I think in the time, that it was released, it probably landed better because it was more contextual, but um yeah, you couldn't do this as a serious movie. To do it as a serious movie, you can't have the blue-collar James Bond. I don't think it would work. I think you need to inject that humor in it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. It needs the humor. Now, I don't know if that's true to the Destroyer books. I mean, Derek, do you know, like, did you ever read those books? Are you familiar No, with them?
0: no. I think I mentioned on a previous pod when we talked about this movie, I, I had a buddy who had a whole bunch of them, and even he only read the first couple, and then he was sort of like, "Ah, I just couldn't get into them, because I think there were only, like, 200 pages each. They weren't very long, but the author pumped out a ton of them. So again, when it said the adventure begins, you're like, well, great. There's 20 novels. Let's go in, you know, you're never going to run out of source material with this. Unfortunately, when the first movie bombs, (laughs) no matter how much source material you got left. (laughs) and, And yeah, I mean, this, this continues to happen, right? When, when you get movies that are adapted from books, you have, um, you have this, this desire to sell as much of it as you can in the first movie to try and entice your audience so that you can potentially get that sequel. But at the same time, some of what makes these series so good is the slow play, the the, the fact that you only roll out certain details and certain events and certain storylines book by book. You should also be doing the movie by movie. And when they're like, well, let's just incorporate these seven things from these seven books into one movie to show everyone how great they are not so good and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what's happened here is i would be shocked if i read if you go back and read the first destroyer book if it's anything like this i'm guessing they drew from like the first five or six books in sort of hodgepodge of stuff so
1: yeah they probably anyway. did so the the next scene where remo has to go up the obstacle course to get up to the up, upper level of the loft and my wife turns to me and she's like oh this is just like the floor is lava yeah. and and then she promptly bailed She's like, I'm leaving. And, and she'd had enough. She hated this movie. Oh, man, too bad. But um, anyway, so they, they they set up the movie a bit more because then Rainer Fleming goes to, to check on the AR-60 at the Fort Baxter there and, and the gun malfunctions. And that's when we right. learn the armed supplier is that Grove guy and he's corrupt. Um, and then the scene at the Ferris wheel comes up next. And I thought this was an important one. They're at Coney Island. Yeah. and. I think some of the stunts are pretty cool in this movie, but it made me realize something. It made me realize just how busy that movies are now these days. Because this movie's action sequences would be considered completely and totally lame by today's standards by today's oh, yeah. audiences.
0: Absolutely agree. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very it's very slow. And I don't mean slow like boring. You know, sometimes like this was a long, boring drama and it was a slow movie. I don't feel this movie was slow in that sense, but I do agree with you. Like for what's being sold as an action movie, what are supposed to be some of the more thrilling action sequences don't have the fast paced MTV style cuts, you know, that you see in today's movie. Uh, again, it's it's a sign of the times, right? It's, it's based on your audience. Today's audience wants that in your face, lots of cuts, lots going on super fast. I don't want a 20 minute action scene. I want a two minute fight scene that's cut together. And that's absolutely not what this movie's like. It's from a different time. It's a different style of movie.
1: Right. I agree. But I think the same could be said of James Bond. If you went back now and watched 1981's uh, For Your Eyes Only, you'd probably be Mm -hmm. like, "Well, this is dull like there's no action here this is an action movie there's no action in it you know so i think it's just it, it, it's a sign of the times today's movies are extremely busy and gen x movies were not quite as busy even the action ones i remember my uni- my in university my roommates used to hate it when i would watch this movie like they thought it was cheesy and dumb and hokey uh, I always liked it. Anyway, um, so I, I was thinking about the the scene when they go to the the fair. They're still at Coney Island, and yep. um, and there's that bottle game. Yeah, and, and William Hickey, who was a character actor for years, and he did tons of stuff. I re- I remember him best from one crazy summer. It was a movie I really liked. He played oh yeah, he old was, man Beckerstead yeah. in the wheelchair. Yeah. Remember? Yes, and, yes. And the thing was, he was also in Pritzy's Honor the same year as this movie in 85 and he was nominated for a best supporting actor Oscar for, for, for really? honor this year.
0: I've never seen Princey's honor. Oh, it's, really it's one funny. of those ones that I've always wanted to see. Mm-hmm. and never did.
1: Well, he, like I say, was nominated. He lost to Don Amici in cocoon, which was basically a, like a lifetime achievement. Yeah. For Amici, a makeup right? Oscar. Yeah but i I, anyway, I played those bottle games at the fair and at oh, carnivals. you can't and, win yeah even at canada's Wonderland, it's impossible to win yeah. and chun of course gets every single hoop on the bottle and then yeah. i love he wins the pink panther and he's yeah. like I, I want him he's mine again the humor you know
0: comes actually out. let me go back for a second that guy that you were talking about a second ago that that was the bottle game yeah game William guy, Hickey. Yep, i actually remember him from a very uh a very little Steve Martin movie called My Blue Heaven, where Steve Martin goes in the witness protection and Rick Moranis is his uh handler. Okay, yep. And, yeah, I think he was in that yep. yeah, and that and that guy that we're talking about, he was uh a con who had been relocated into the same same town and he ran the pet store. And when they go in, he's like, he had a parrot, and the guy's like, probably oh, want a cracker, probably want a... He goes, He doesn't say that. He goes, What does he say? He says, You're under arrest. And that, that's, when I saw this movie the other night, Remo, I'm like, oh, that's the guy from My Blue Heaven. Yes. So it's its funny where you sort of remember some of these actors from.
1: Absolutely. And and, and so we mentioned the, the humor in this movie, and then it just starts coming at you in the next couple scenes, because yeah. when Remo starts to to learn how to dodge the bullets, you know, the whole yeah. scene is played for laugh, because because Shun shoots two bullets at him, he gets out of the way, yeah. and then he, he pulls the trigger when he's walking, and it just clicks, and Remo yeah. goes, you used the other four yesterday, and then Chun shoots again; the gun discharges. Yeah, and he's like, "I reloaded." Yeah. So, and then when they go to the beach and they're training, I think I'm pretty sure that would be near Coney Island as well, like Brighton Beach. Um, and then Remo dives into the pile of sand and he comes out on the top. And and when when he did that, I'm thinking I'm really glad my wife went to bed because yeah. if she if she saw this, she I'm just never hear the end of it. Yeah. And then that seemed really dumb to me. I just yeah. I don't know. And then that's when McCreary comes along and he's like, "Well, will he be ready?" And Shuna's like, yeah, I think he will be ahead of time, maybe 15 years. And the guy's like, 15 years? Well, if I cut a few corners, 14 and a half. And again, so, like, lots of humor. And then even when Remo starts to
0: get concerned about um, a lack of sex. uh, and Yeah, that that just seemed really out of place. You know what I mean? Like, it... It was played for laughs. Mm -hmm. Again, humor, right? Yeah, but it just – the movie – in my opinion, the movie ran a little bit long. I mean it ran two hours longer than it should have. But in order to – like you could easily tighten this up a bit. There was a lot of stuff where it was like – Scenes that didn't make sense, scenes that I didn't feel really added anything and in some cases, even some scenes that sort of hurt it. And that whole one with the sex thing that to me, just it, it almost it, I felt it hurted it more than it helped. It, it certainly wasn't necessary.
1: Yeah. I mean, because he teaches them like how to tap on the, the pulse. And then I like at the end of the scene, Remo goes, you know, there's times I could really kill you. And Shun's like, good, we'll work on that after dinner. And again, yeah. it's just it's just humor after humor. But the, the the scene in the elevator between Kate Mulgrew and Remo and he says to her, he's like, nice buttons. Oh, nice buttons. And, and she, she laughs. And she laughs. Oh and, and she's like, nice buttons. I don't know if you noticed it, but there was a loop in there. ADR. Remember we I, mentioned on, I didn't
0: notice in that scene. Oh, I noticed yes. it At the very beginning when they went into the bank. When after he steals the ambulance and they go into the bank, and he says about the computers, like, oh, they know what made these things smaller. That scene where they go from the, um, the ambulance into the elevator. There's a bunch of dialogue where they're going through like a revolving door, and in that one, you can see the lips oh, don't very match good. at all. I know that no, one right away. I noticed it in this scene. It's so obvious. If you go back and just watch it, it's so obvious. The
1: ADR um, yeah. from our pet peeves thing because her lips just don't match up with the dialogue. But
0: anyway, it's a good line. At that that see, I that thought scene, it was too. I, it actually worked. Yeah, I it's, agree. It's clear that as a woman in a position of power, she's used to having to deal with stupid men. As we've we've already seen examples of this. Mm-hmm. And you got to think in the 80s, she's heard every cheesy pickup line that that ever was, whether she wanted to or not. And this was clearly something she'd never heard before. I mean, it's such a dumb line that all she could do as a response is laugh. And, and that to me just seemed like the right way to handle that. She wasn't going to give it any credibility, but it made her laugh, and it made me laugh as I was watching it because again, it's so dumb. And her response was so great. See, I, I like the direction in this movie because there's all this humor,
1: all this humor, all this humor, and then it goes right into what I think is the best scene in the movie when they're at the Statue of Liberty. Absolutely, with all the scaffolding because it was yep. it was undergoing a restoration between '84 and '86. And I like how they incorporated that into the movie. And like I said, I think it's one of the best scenes in movie.
0: And it would, they used it on, well, movie on the movie poster. Yeah. poster, right? Yeah. It's on the, I can remember working the video store. That's on the cover of the, of the, the movie. And I'm sure if you went out today to buy the DVD, if you could find it anywhere, cause really who wants that? Um, yeah, it's Easy. literally a picture. If you go to the IMDB, I'm looking at now it's, it's the cover of the video where it's, he's hanging off of the, the statue of Liberty. You can see the scaffolding behind it. Like this is, this is what they use to sell the movie. This is their pitch. There's going to be this big fight where you're on the outside of the statue of Liberty and <laughs> I liked
1: how he was standing on the, on a plank, like between two beams and the camera kind of comes in. It's obviously in a helicopter, goes all around him and you see Manhattan in the background. It's a pretty cool shot, you know, and, and and actually I think a few of the shots in this scene are actually pretty cool. Um, So they, they, they shot it at the actual Statue of Liberty, but they also built a replica of the head and they used it in Mexico because they weren't allowed to actually touch the statue in any way when they went up there so for some of the scenes where he like slides down if they had to build the replica um okay. but for me the whole scene really works you know again uh, by I mean, by today's yeah. standards i think it would be considered lame but i thought it was cool at the time and and for me i thought this scene stood up
0: so i i agree and disagree again i'm gonna give the agree and disagree answer a lot with this that's so okay. i agree that i think this was a great scene i think this is a great because uh, this happens a little just a little i think past the halfway point in the movie so if you're not really sure sort of where this is going this is sort of a good injection of adrenaline to go like here it is we're going to actually show him doing some stuff they've already established that he's afraid of heights but you've already seen him start to get the hang of some of the special martial arts so you, you suspect he's going to do okay but at the same time you don't there's no guarantee that he's going to walk away completely unscathed so my, my two real issues with this one some of the editing is terrible. It's there's a scenes where it's like you see him um going past and going down from the um the torch. And then in the next scene, he's back up next to the torch. And then the next scene, he's below the torch, and then the next scene he's back above it. Like just some of the editing was not done very well. Again, it happens pretty quick. And in movies like this, you can forgive I mean, the movie's so cheesy anyway. You can forgive some of that. The thing though that I found was really unusual or that more that bothered me was the the goon of the movie the guy with the diamond in his tooth oh yes <laughs> he basically yeah. hired three guys who i assume are just the construction guys that work there anyway because they seem to they had the hard hats on and the safety gear and they seemed to know what they were doing and he paid them what 30 bucks go kill this man really we're gonna friggin' just kill a guy in cold blood for 30 bucks uh you're gonna go to jail if you get caught you really think that this is the right move some random stranger comes up and goes Here's 30 bucks, guys. You can split it among the three of you, however you see fit. <laughs> right. But just make sure this guy it falls off the Statue of Liberty and dies. And uh, have a good day. So I, like, thought, I so. thought one of those
1: guys looked like and sounded like Joe Pesci, too.
0: Oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, definitely. But But, yeah, it just it seems I'm watching the scene. I mean, the scene itself, once you can sort of get past that part of it, it's him versus three guys and the three guys have the advantage because they're they know what they're doing and they're obviously not afraid of heights. And so it's an interesting fight scene and an interesting location. And it's it's something you've never seen before and something you're never going to see again, because, again, they took advantage of the fact the scaffolding was there And I'd be surprised in my lifetime if we ever see that again at the actual Statue of Liberty. So it it sort of places it in a moment in time. They take advantage of this this unique opportunity, which I thought was really clever. And then um, when he's actually fighting the guys in the elevator sort of at the end of the fight, it looked to me like the one guy, he wrapped the rope around his neck twice and then booted him out of the elevator. And I thought, okay, he just killed that guy. Mm -hmm. Then it cuts to a scene of that guy hanging from the rope by his leg, upside down, and I was like, again, you just put that around his neck. The consistency was, in the again, editing again. I think I think I would not be surprised if what happened was they did some dailies, their test screenings, and they're like, ooh, he just killed this guy. Uh, okay, we need to do a follow up shot where the guy is hanging but not dead. And so I think that was probably the way that they saved that little oopsie from the movie but uh, that
1: could be that could be yeah I, one, one one scene i just want to mention in, in that scene that i thought was really cool was when he goes out on the pole and it like bends out over the water yes you know i don't know i just i thought it was a really really great shot there were some good shots in this and then a lot of his training comes back into play throughout the movie, and. Like a lot of it came into play here when he was jumping through the obstacle course in Shun's apartment we mentioned earlier. It comes in handy when he's like going around the scaffolding, yeah. Of and course. and um, I thought it was that's uh, just good storytelling. I mean, I thought it was cool too when, when you mentioned when he was on the elevator, he was trying to go down the outside, and the guy's trying to like bang his fingers with a wrench, you know. And then when, when he runs across, he remember he his training, he ran across the sand and was levitating. And yeah. then he does that over the cement. Again, it's cheesy. Of course it is. But it's it's fun. I don't know. That's what I think.
0: And are we to assume the bad guy that fell into that concrete died? Oh, I, or did the workers would, rescue him?
1: I don't know. They just sat there and watched him. Yeah. They didn't do anything. Just so, so I'm of, assuming.
0: That I mean, they the, just whole, left them. the whole setup of that, like, why would you build something that's four feet deep full of concrete? Like, it just seems. <laughs> Why would you not just pack, just you know, there's dirt so many and then anyway. just a shallow thing of concrete. On top. So expensive. Why would you <laughs> waste? It? Yeah. It just seemed like it was a, and if he had just gone <laughs> around point. to the right, he could have stayed on the sidewalk. Like why run over that? Why thing? run over just go around it, yeah. you know? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Again, it's, it's just part of the cheese, the yeah. cheese factor of the movie. Right. So,
1: so, so Remo at this point goes and sees Smith and McCreary and he learns that they have a plan that they will take their own lives if they get ever get discovered and he learns that chun is going to kill him if it comes down to it right and then i love this scene he remo goes back to the apartment and chun is there and see like chun is supposed to lead this minimalistic life but he's sitting there on a tiger skin rug and there's the giant pink panther sitting in the window sill i don't know that's just how thought the scene and then like i mentioned the score in this movie is just i think it's fantastic
0: it It's it very of its time and yeah. it works. It's very 80s, but it's it's good in the sense that it's very 80s. I think it should have been nominated for an Oscar. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not get carried
1: away. I think the score was that good. I mean, if you think of the other scores that were nominated that year, it was like Out of Africa, and Agnes of God, Color Purple, Silverado. Witness, Witness was pretty good, though. It had a good score, too. But I don't know. I think it was good. Um, it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Makeup, as we mentioned. It lost a mask. So, I mean, I get it. You know, making Eric Stoltz into Rocky Dennis was a little bit more impressive than making Joel Gray not look Korean. (laughs) So I guess that was good. Um, So the warehouse scene. So this is the scene. That used to make my university roommates so mad at me. So when those Dobermans chase Remo and, oh, yeah. and they jump up and they grab the bar, the metal stairs with their teeth and they bring it down so they can go up the stairs. My roommates used to say that was the worst scene they've ever seen in any movie. And they just hated this movie because of it. So
0: see, and I remember that was one of the scenes that I remembered quite well from yeah. when I saw it when I was 11, because as an 11 year old, I thought that was great. And then later on when the dog does the tightrope walk as well, and it's like, right, that just Again, as an 11 year old, I thought this is fantastic. Like this, this scene is so original. Now I watched it. I'm like, oh my God, this is so dumb. And,
1: And then he goes and finds Harp. And it's just this fake piece of equipment and they've got all this like elaborate stuff on it for it to self-destruct. So it's such an important thing that it just, it simply can't be discovered that it's all a fake. So it's so important that they put these two elderly guards on the watch that fall asleep on the job.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, geez. Well, there's an electrified fence. So, you yeah, know, that's I guess it keep safe. People out.
1: <laughs> right. So um, Remo wants to kill Grove and Wilford Brimley basically gives them the green light. But he has to make it look like a perfect accident, right? Yeah. So I this is where they go. He goes there. He goes out to the the the, the site where they're at, and Grove's guy picks up Fleming and Remo, and then puts him in that decompression room yeah. where they change the air pressure, like you mentioned. And I just love this scene too because he leaves his assistant there, the guy with the tooth. Yeah. Just make sure that they die, you know, but the guy, he's still pissed at Remo because he choked about New York. So he puts on a gas mask and goes in to beat him up. And again, Remo draws on his training, right? And this time with the Korean fingerboard. So his, his fingers are strong. So he, he breaks the guy's masks and then he uses the diamond tooth to cut the glass. <laughs> it's again, it's all cheesy, but I, I don't know. I still think it's a lot of fun at this point.
0: Um, I'm so I again as a slightly more savvy and experienced movie watcher and, and, and older person mm-hmm. watching this now that whole scene about the I wasn't understanding what the room was it was it a room where they were uh, like was it a decompression room were they taking the air out or were they increasing the pressure and regardless of which way it went. The guy comes in with the mask. He has to open a door to get in there. Wouldn't that reset the whole pressure? Exactly. And then he get opens get and closes.
1: And I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, well, and then it's the like pressure.
0: And me. if it's a pressure room, you're not I'm, like breathing is the least of your problems. What about the pressure in your ears? And your like, there's other factors going. On. It's not <laughs> like they've seen what made more sense. If it was like green gas is being flooded into the room. It's like they're choking and coughing and passing out. Okay, cool. The room is sealed and you're putting gas in there. I get it. And then he comes in with a gas mask. That would have totally worked for me. But they were like, it wasn't clear. It's like, it seemed like it was supposed to be like a decompression room or something. I was like, I don't understand what this is all about. But I remember yeah, he got out. And I remember the scene with the tooth where he, yeah. you know, made the X with the diamond and smashed through the window. But uh, yeah. I got to say, you
1: know, since it's an 80s film, it wouldn't be complete without even more sexist and racist dialogue. So the scene when Chun meets Fleming, And he says to her, he's like, Well, women should stay at home and make babies, preferably man child. And (laughs) Remo's response is he's like, Oh, don't worry about him. He always talks like that. He's Korean. (laughs) Just like, Jeez, man, this thing is just crazy. (laughs) But um, so then they they steal the truck, the brakes don't work, and Fleming and and Remo get out. And then, but Shun is trapped and they go to the wreckage. And of course, he's totally (laughs) unhurt. Just yeah. So cheesy, yeah,
0: right. But okay, so let me stop you for a <laughs> second. So, the whole idea was: um, Remo is going to kill that main guy, the bad Grove. guy, I can't yeah. think of his name, Grove. Grove. Yeah, yeah, and it's got to look like an accident. And so he's on the military base and he meets up with Kate Mulgrew's character and they're doing whatever. And then they realize, oh, my God, they're trying to kill them. And so they're trying to escape. So I'm thinking, okay, I guess he's not going to succeed on this plan of killing this guy, making it look like an accident, especially now that they all know he's here. He's going to flee. And that's what they do. They get in the truck and they're driving away and they're like, great. And then it's like the movie seemed to sort of take a left turn from there. And I was like, really, this is where it's going. Like it just the whole reason from being there got thrown out the window. It was like, yeah. well, they have, they, they start that bomb drill, remember? Yeah. And, and yeah. trying to
1: kill him. And he's running through the forest. The only thing I will say about that scene is that this is before CGI. So a stunt yes. man had to actually run and come close to those explosions yeah. You know, which was kind of cool, I guess. And then Remo goes up on that log and he's hanging from the tripwire,
0: which I again, an, another cool shot. The movie had lots of cool shots. Yeah. And that, that was what I was thinking. I'm like, OK, so what's he doing here? He's just trying to escape with his life. This log is going to bring him down to the water and he's going to flee. OK, that's his opportunity to kill this guy and make it look like an accident is gone. He's that oh, yeah. ship has sailed. He is now just I can't get caught. I gotta get the hell out of here. Well,
1: especially because Grove starts Grove himself starts shooting at him with an assault rifle and then runs out of bullets, so he grabs like a twenty mil anti aircraft gun and starts shooting at him. <laughs> and yeah. and that's when he he, um, well, again, his training comes into play because if you remember at the Ferris wheel, he had to like hang so that then he, yeah. he, you know, remember he remembers that and he hangs on the log and then he releases the log and it looks like an
0: accident, I guess, because all the logs fall well, down. And that's what Kill I'm like, growth. okay, so is this the, this is supposed to be an accident that, oh my God, this log accidentally fell at accidentally this exact point, which accidentally caused these logs that were in storage to accidentally go onto the road where this Jeep just happened to be at that time and everybody accidentally was killed, no questions asked. Oh, perfect. This is the most perfect assassination ever. No one would suspect foul play. This is, of course, there are 20 coincidences that happened. It just, it made no sense to me at this point. I'm like, is this movie almost over?
1: I know. And then it is over because then she says, who are you? And then he's like, would you believe we're the good guys and they leave? So it totally sets it up for a sequel.
0: But alas, it just wasn't meant to be, you know, well, and the, the only saving. Well, not the only one of the saving graces of this movie. One of the things that always remembered was the very last line of the movie where he says to him, you know, Chun, you're incredible. And he goes, no, I am better than that. And I always remembered that line. Yeah. So I, I knew um, like when we're getting close to the end of the movie, I'm like, I know that line's coming up. I didn't realize it was literally the last line. But again, they jump in the boat. And they start driving away on the boat and all those military guys are there and they've already been given kill orders. It's like, why are they not shooting at the boat? And I think because they, they the were, they were amazed. I think somebody? because
1: they were amazed that he ran across the water and it and just threw them off long
0: enough for them to get guess, away. There they were just like, like, oh my God. Yeah. I guess there it was not just... one guy who went, Hey, You know, let's not sweat that. Let's do our duty here. We've been trained. We're highly trained military people. We're going to do what we've been instructed to do. It's like, I don't know, it just seemed too, too neat and perfect by the end the movie
1: has flaws there's no question about
0: it. yeah definitely but i have to say that i i liked it i mean it's
1: a lot of fun to watch it's not meant to be taken seriously it's about having fun and and one of the things i always liked about the earlier james bond movies like especially the roger moore ones was that it was the humor that was part of the film and and i don't know so i i still enjoyed it
0: yeah, I, so I'm a cult of one. Apparently. After I watched this movie, I was thinking about it and it, it occurred to me, especially since I'd watched all those Marvel Comics movies in the last few weeks was this movie is essentially an origin story. It's how did this guy go from being a regular guy to superhero? Yep. And the problem was, for a frame of reference, I just watched twenty amazingly outstanding, phenomenal, brand new, as good as they can be superhero movies, most of which were origin movies that are fantastic. And then I watch this and it's like, it's an origin movie that really doesn't pay off. His origin was eh, just okay. His training montage eh, was just okay. And then when he gets out and starts doing stuff, you're like, yeah, that's just mildly interesting. Like, I don't know. I, again, I, I think it's a sign of the times where there wasn't a lot of other things to compare it to. So yeah. the MCU less, did not been, exist in 1985. No, exactly. yeah. There would be less to compare it to. So you would potentially be less critical because you wouldn't have that frame of comparison. But by today's standard, it's like when I, like and I was thinking like if it's something like a Batman movie or a Captain America movie where the audience, a lot of the audience will understand like eventually this character will become someone I know. He'll become Batman. He'll become Superman. He'll become the Hulk, whatever. Um, this was an unknown commodity where they're like we're going to make him this action star. You, It is an origin story, but you don't really know where he's supposed to get to. It's like at least with James Bond – he's already James Bond when the first movie ever began. And they, they've they never really, excuse me, until recently gone into an origin story with it. It's just, he is what he is. Let's accept it and move on. And here's a great action movie featuring this super spy who has gadgets and training and all that. This one to me sort of fell flat on both of those. It didn't, it wasn't a great origin story. It wasn't a great action movie. It was very meh. Dare I ask what you would
1: give it out of 10?
0: I would give it a... Five, maybe a five and a half for some nostalgia factors, but uh, I think a five is generous. Uh, I just cannot overlook the whole white guy playing a Korean character. That to me is is just an unforgivable sin. I, I would certainly not recommend this movie to anybody.
1: Well, I I got to say I'm a little surprised. I, that's a little bit higher than I thought. I was expecting like a two out of here or something like that. So I would give it a seven out of ten. It was incredibly nostalgic, though. So I think that's what kind of buoyed uh, that rating for me. So I don't know. I enjoyed it again. So anyway, time to have some fun with Caveman. All right.
0: Over to you, my friend. All right. So this movie, as we spent a lot of time talking about, Mm -hmm. features some pretty decent makeup work or pretty terrible makeup work where they try to make a white actor a Korean character. (laughs) Right. And... The, at the time, the people felt that this movie was the, – the makeup was so good that they should nominate for an Academy Award. It was that fantastic, this transformation of this right. this person into the character. So I wanted to lean into that. I'm going to ask you 10 questions, and in each case, we're going to talk about the makeup. And what I'm looking for in the answer of all this There is I'm looking for the name of a character and or the actor that played that character. And in all cases, the the character will be someone who was transformed by makeup as a pivotal part of, of the storytelling. I'm not talking about like, Oh, the guy was the incredible Hulk and he, they put him slap makeup on him and suddenly he was green. I mean, like something where the entire, like this, it wasn't that Joel gray was a white guy who transformed halfway through into a Korean guy. It was the whole, the whole shtick is he is who he is because of the makeup. So In all – I'm going to ask you 10 questions. The whole thing here, we want these characters – a defining part of their character was the fact that the makeup helped them transform into these various roles, Okay. All right. And in each case, if you can give me the name of the actor that is actually doing the makeup and the movie they're in, bonus points. But – predominantly I'm looking for the title of the movie, but if you can give me the actor, which I think in most cases you'll, that's sort of the big clue anyway, mm-hmm. uh, bonus points for you. So, so right. it's
1: where actors were transformed. Yes. Because of makeup.
0: Yes. Okay. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, there aren't, there aren't any tricks in here. These are all very on the nose, very straightforward. I mentioned to my wife, I was doing this topic and she goes, you got to do these movies. She rhymes off like six of the 10 where her, I'm like, yeah, those are all on my list. She's like, oh, he's going to know all these. So, all right. You ready? Uh, yes all right it's 10 questions so first one makeup helped this actor completely transform into a deformed victorian era freak this 1980 film was nominated for eight oscars but sadly not for best makeup since that oscar didn't exist until the next year oh it was the elephant man it was who played the elephant man. uh john hurt Yes, ding ding, you got them both.
1: Yes, he reprised his stage role for that. That was uh, Mel Brooks actually produced that famo- that movie famo- mm-hmm. of all things. That I went to see that in the movie theater. I was ten wow. years old. I, I thought it was fantastic. It wasn't. Yeah, they they so the the makeup didn't didn't exist. The Oscar yeah.
0: the next year they was the first year they had a makeup. And I think there's only like two nominees. Like for the first few years there weren't a lot of nominees in the category, and then over the years it expanded. They
1: must have started looking at it with Star Wars
0: back in seventy <laughs> seven, saying, "Hey, like Rick Baker deserves an Oscar for this." stuff yeah you know oh, all right yeah well funny you bring up rick baker he's the start of our next question here all right so rick baker and david leroy anderson won best makeup oscars in 1997 for transforming this saturday night live alumnus into six different characters for the remake of this 1963 comedy classic
1: oh it was on the, the nutty professor
0: yes yes Who was the star eddie murphy yes Good evening all right.
1: The original uh, Nutty Professor was um, Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. Yeah, mm-hmm. very good.
0: All right. Next question. Michael Westmore and Zoltan Elk won the Best Makeup Oscar in 1986, transforming this young actor into a teenager with a massive facial skull deformity. Oh, I
1: mentioned it. Already. It was mass. just
0: mentioned. Yeah, and it was Eric Stoltz. Yes, Eric Stoltz. Yes. Mass. Got it. Again, these aren't too different. Yeah, no, no, you, you're All right. Uh, Greg Canham, V. Neal, and Yolanda Tousing won the Best Makeup Oscar in 1994, disguising this comedic genius into an elderly housekeeper.
1: Oh, was it uh, Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire?
0: Yes, it was. Yes. Oh, good. Nice. All right. This... Remarkably talented and stunningly beautiful woman won the Best Actress Oscar in 2004, perhaps in part because she was so believable playing a Daytona Beach prostitute who became a serial killer underneath all that makeup. Uh, Was it Monster? It was Monster. And do you know who the star was who won an Oscar for this performance?
1: Oh, yeah. It was uh, the girl from uh, Mad Max um, Fury Road that we just watched the other week. Oh, what the hell was
0: her name? Oh, it escapes me right now. It was Charlize Theron. It was Charlize Theron. That was it. Yeah. All right. All right. This actor's career defining role as one of the most terrifying horror villains of the 80s and 90s required him to wear burn makeup on his entire head in nine different films.
1: Oh, that was uh, Robert Englund in Nightmare on Elm Street.
0: Yes, He, he never really did anything else other than those. Yeah. Now, well, his IMDb page is crazy. He's got a lot of credits, but most of them are related to Freddy Krueger and voice yeah. work. and He'd Probably all, yeah. voice work, yeah. I'm sure he's done very well. All right. Um, okay, I'm going to butcher all these names. I apologize right off the bat here. Uh, Kazoo Hero, David... Malinowski and Lucy Sibek won the Best Makeup and Hairstyling Oscar in 2018 for transforming this gifted actor into the British Prime Minister, a role he won the Best a- Actor Oscar for in the same year. Oh, was it um,
1: Churchill? It
0: was and, and was the it
1: Prime Minister? Yeah. And was it John Lithgow?
0: No, it was not.
1: Oh, who was the actor?
0: He won, he won the Oscar that same year that the people won make, makeup for transforming him into, um, Churchill. Can you think of it? I can't know. It was Gary Oldman. Oh, okay. The okay. movie was darkest hour. Oh, okay. Which I've never seen. But. All right. Uh, we've got, uh, three more to go here. Okay. Uh, Greg Canham won the best makeup Oscar in 2009, for transforming this actor into a man through all ages of his life, but in reverse.
1: Oh, was it, um, Oh, it was Brad Pitt. Yep. Oh, what was the name of that movie? David Fincher. Movie. Um, it was like button, uh, the, yep. The, uh, again, it came out after 1989. So
0: I'll give you, again. I'll get pretty close. I'll give it to you. It's the curious case of Benjamin. Button. Benjamin Button. That was it. Where yes. he, he basically lives in reverse. He yes. starts, he starts old and then he, and he
1: regresses down to a, a kid.
0: Have you seen it? No, I have not. It's good. It's a, it's a David Fincher movie. He's one of my favorite directors. So, all right. Uh, two more to go. It's a travesty that this 2004 film was snubbed for a best makeup Oscar nomination despite the talent required to transform these two African-American men into breathtaking Caucasian women.
1: Oh, God, was it white chicks?
0: It was white (laughs) chicks! Of oh the two guys. God, they're, 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 way, way,
1: they're both, they're, they're both weigh-ins, but I don't know. Um, I don't know what the way Sean
0: and Marlon Wayans.
1: Oh, okay. Sean and Marlon Wayans okay.
0: travesty that they didn't get an <laughs> yeah, yeah, what a
1: travesty. I remember going one time, quick aside, went over to my father-in-law's house one time with my wife and he was watching this movie and laughing his head off. And I remember just getting up and leaving the room. It was I, I gotta, so awful.
0: I gotta admit this movie is pretty funny. Oh, God, it's, it it's one of those awful. ones where there's so many dumb things that you just have to laugh at. And I, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it's funnier on rewatch. So just keep that I'll take your mind. word for it. Yeah. All right. Last question. Yes. Makeup completely transformed this People magazine's most beautiful people cover boy into a fat, balding, utterly gross man in this 2008 film.
1: Oh, I want to say it was Tropic Thunder.
0: Nope. Tom
1: Cruise. Yeah. Yes. So I. Wa- so again, I don't watch very many movies after nineteen eighty nine, but Tropic Thunder was fantastic. And it's funny we were talking earlier about um, Caucasians playing non-Caucasian roles. Robert Downey Jr.'s performance in that movie was unbelievable it was so 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 good it's so nominated for
0: i want to say he was nominated for an oscar for that he
1: was he was nominated for an oscar for that role and and, and deservedly so he was so good his speech that he gave about oh geez i can't even mention it on on air but the speech that he gives about going full you know oh it was just so funny oh geez god that was that movie was good
0: all right good one so it was good so we're gonna tie this into your so the number the last question Mm -hmm. the answer was tom cruise and uh, I'm going to tie that into the movie that I'm going to get you to watch for next week. Yeah, because it's your wow. turn to nominate a movie. What do you want to do? After watching this this utter travesty of a movie, I want to get you to watch something decent. You're not going to like it, but that's too bad. Everybody else is going to like it because it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stars Tom Cruise. Me. Okay. It's from 2014. Okay. It's not Mission Impossible. It's called Edge of Tomorrow. It's also known as Live, Die, Repeat. But the real title is Edge of Tomorrow. It's directed by uh, Doug Lehman, who also directed uh, The Bourne Identity, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Swingers. Um, It's uh, it's an action sci fi film. Again, I know this probably isn't really in your wheelhouse, but I've never even
1: heard of this movie. And so it's funny that you say that I'm not going to like this, but everyone else will like this. How is everyone else going to like it? I've never even heard of it.
0: Well, was it popular? so it's one of these, again, not to step on too much for next week, but when it was released in the theater, it did OK. I mean, Tom Cruise is a bankable commodity. They're going to make money a worldwide box office. Do you just slap his name on the poster? It did OK. And then when it went to DVD and video, well, I guess DVD, it would have been 2014. Um, It sold like gangbusters and it found a real sort of cult following and on cable and streaming services. And this is one of those ones that it shows up on my, uh, on my, my TV at least once every three or four months. And uh, I, th- I want to say it's uh, it, it, it. Well, I guess if it came out in 2014, it's what six years now. So I guess when it was its fifth year anniversary in 2019, it was shown, I was seeing it on TV like every couple of weeks and they're like, you know, uh, uh anyway, it's called Edge of Tomorrow.
1: Okay, I will try and uh, find it. Hopefully it's not as hard to find as Remo Williams.
0: No, no, no. I look, you can you can rent it off Amazon for five bucks if okay. you can't find it anywhere else. Um, but I will tell you that, again, the the poster for the movie in giant letters says, live, die, repeat. And then in small letters, it says, Tom Cruise in Edge of Tomorrow. So a lot of people, if you ask them about this movie, they're like, I never heard of it. And then you go, oh, it's live, die, repeat. And they go, oh, I, I've seen that. So- When you're searching for it, if you can't find it under Edge of Tomorrow, search for Live, Die, Repeat. You'll probably find it there.
1: I shall do my best. All right. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, until uh, next week, um, if you want to reach out to Derek on Twitter, you can find him at Amaron underscore DM, and I'm on Twitter at C McBrien. And again, popcozierworld.com is our uh, website with all of our contact information. Shoot us an email and get into the show around here. But until next week, when I have to watch this this uh, Tom Cruise movie that I've never heard about, uh, this is Chris Mcbryan for Derek Myers saying, thanks for listening to Pop Cozier World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.